Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. Um, welcome to church, uh, Zoe Community Church to be specific. If you were looking for some other church, then it's too late. We already started. Uh, but anyway, we want to welcome you to church. My name's Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. If you don't know me or you're new or visiting, even if you've been here the past few weeks, I haven't been up here in a while. Um, kind of a big change happened with my family. Uh, we got a new TV. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but what happened was uh, we had a baby. We had our third child and first son. So uh, he's here in the world. His name is Levi. So thank you guys. I know a lot of you have been praying for us. You've given us food and diapers and all these things. So we're really appreciative of that. Um, and hopefully he'll be here next week so you guys can meet him, uh, infect him with your germs, etc. So I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But hopefully he will be here next week. Um, so for the past few weeks, okay, we've been going over this series. We said it was a mini-series, um, but it's been like two months now. But we're going through this series on the images of the church in the New Testament, the metaphors that the New Testament, the Bible itself, uses to describe the church. And we've called it ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church, which means assembly. Uh, and we've called kind of the subtitle, What the Church Looks Like. Because the church has been growing, okay, our church has been growing a little bit, it's been changing a little bit, and we want to make sure, uh, even though, you know, we've been in 1 Samuel, we're going to go into 2 Samuel, it's been good, we want to make sure that when we're talking about church, and when we think about what it means to be involved in church, and to become members of a church, and to come to church on Sunday, that we're seeing the same thing, that we have the same picture in mind, that we're on the same page. So, we're going to go through pretty much every metaphor, there's three more, including today, so today, two more after this. But today we're talking about maybe the most common. In fact, implicitly, it is by far the most common image for the church used in the New Testament. So if you could open with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read verses 14 and 15. And if you were here a few weeks ago, maybe this passage will sound familiar because Pastor James preached a message from verse 15, but we're going to focus on a different part. 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon, God, and we are here to worship you. We are here to fellowship with the saints. Lord, we are here to give of our time and of our service. But God, we are also here. And one of the main reasons we are here is to hear a word from you. God, we know that you speak through the Bible. God, that the scriptures are your holy word to us that they speak eternal and timeless and perfect truth. And God, I pray that you would use this word, not my words, not my thoughts, God, but your words and your thoughts to teach us about your church so that we might have the right attitude and the right heart so that we might live in a way that pleases you. God, most of all, God, we ask that your spirit would do a work inside of us, that we would not be merely hearers of the word, but doers of it. And I pray, God, that you would exalt your son. We are gathered here because of him. He is the one who has brought us together as one body, as one people, and one family. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever wished your family was different? Have you ever wished your family was different? Some people are thinking about nodding. I could see it in your eyes, but you're sitting next to your family. So you don't want to have that awkward conversation in the car ride. But I think if we're being fully open and honest and transparent, I think the answer is yes. Even if it, it's small ways that you wish your family was different. I mean, just a little thing here, a little habit here, a little pet peeve. All of us have wished that maybe someone in our family was slightly different. But let me follow up with this question. Have you ever wished that you didn't have a family at all? I was reading this story about this girl named Starly. And when she was a kid, okay, when she was a little kid, her dream was to be a child actor. She grew up in the 80s when child actors were kind of big. Um, and she wanted to be like a kid actor on TV, like Mary-Kate and Ashley or something like that. 
And so she enrolled in this class with a famous acting teacher, and they had her do all these different drills with these other kids, acting drills to learn how to like get into character. And one of their biggest assignments was to create their own character. And the only guideline was you have to create someone who is troubled, quote unquote. So Starley was like, I'm going to be an orphan. Because for her, orphans were troubled enough, but they were also cool and they were kind of lone wolves and they were street smart. So she decided to be an orphan. And she went to class and she said, I'm going to be an orphan. And then pretty much every other kid in the class said the same thing. I want to be an orphan. Now, if you're not from the 80s or you didn't grow up in the 80s, in the 80s, a strange and wonderful time it was. In the 80s, in American culture, orphans were everywhere. Okay, Little Orphan Annie was still a thing. Uh, Fonzie, Pony Boy. If you don't know who this is, this is why Wikipedia exists. So you can look it up later. But there are all these orphans. You can take my word for it. Orphan characters were ubiquitous back then. But the thing with Starly, as she was sharing about it, she was saying, okay, it wasn't just that I saw a lot of orphans on TV. That's why I wanted to be an orphan. But it also had to do with her family. See, for her, she was part of a family where her mother was the kind of mother where if she wanted to go across the street to see her friend who was a neighbor, her mother would say, don't walk across the street. You might get hit by a car. Let me drive you. So she would just roll out the car, get her in, strap her in the seatbelt, and then drive her literally across the street so she wouldn't get hit by a car. Her mother was extremely overprotective, and it felt exhausting. It felt suffocating. So when she was thinking about who do I want to be, if I could imagine someone that's different than me, a different situation, she thought, well, if I was an orphan, then I wouldn't have to deal with my mom anymore. It sounds terrible, but that's what she was thinking. To her, being an orphan was the freest thing a person could be. So looking back now as an adult, Starley's not even sure if she really wanted to be an orphan on TV or just an orphan in real life. Now, here's a question. Okay, you ready? We're talking about the church as the household of God, the family of God. The question is, what is family? What is family? What do you think of when I say the word family? I started with that story on purpose because, here, listen to this. Someone once said, I looked up quotes about family online. Someone said, being a family means you are part of something very wonderful. It means you will love and be loved the rest of your life. Right, so sweet. Right, a lot of us maybe think that theoretically, but if we get down to kind of the nitty gritty, or even just the reality of everyday life when it comes to family, it's not always the most wonderful thing, is it? I mean, some of us are already thinking that when I'm reading that quote. Instead of wanting to cry, you want to throw up because you're like, okay, that's not my family. What about Starly? She dream. Her dream was to be an orphan. And not that she hates her family or anything, but it's just a reflection of how hard family was for her growing up sometimes. So the question that we need to start with is, what is family? When I say the word family, what are you supposed to think? What do you think? Is family a help or is it a hindrance? Is it a blessing or is it a burden? I mean, if you think about your own family specifically for a moment, don't get too deep here. But think about some memories, some associations, uh, how things were growing up, how things are now, uh, your relationship with your siblings, with your parents, even your own kids. Is it all good or is it all bad? It's neither, right? It's a mixture of both. It's not that clear cut. So you guys are like, Jesse, why are you bringing this up? Okay, maybe you've had too long to think about it. Over a month you've been thinking about this. Well, I have been thinking about it for a long time because family, out of all the metaphors, not saying it's the most important one, but family is the most commonly occurring metaphor by far, like I said, in the New Testament, at least implicitly. Okay, explicitly, Ephesians 2, we're members of the household of God. Galatians 6, household of faith, right here in 1 Timothy 3. But implicitly, again and again and again, you have these people who are of different ages, different ethnicities, they're from different countries, different socioeconomic status, people who haven't even met each other yet or had just met, they refer to each other consistently throughout the New Testament as what? Brother and sister in Christ. Bible is everywhere. Uh, Family is everywhere. If there's one image of the church that settled into the very bones of the early Christians, it was this idea that we are in some way 
now a family, the family of God. And most of us have heard this before, so I know that I don't need to just say it as new information. Really what the issue is for us today is, what does that mean? What does it mean? And that's why we turn to 1 Timothy 3. We need God himself to show us what he means when he says the church is a family. So let's get into it. Okay, three points from this one verse, really just part of this one verse in verse 15. Um, But we're going to unpack this concept of household of God. So first, the picture, then the problem, then the privilege, just to give you a sense of where we're going. First, the picture. Let's talk about the picture, the image, the metaphor. And this is about getting the right perspective, getting us on the same page as believers as we talk about church family. So look at our text, 1 Timothy 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. You can stop there. Okay, let's start with the Greek. Okay, let's just get into the details. The word translated household here in the Greek is the word oikon. Okay, O-I-K-O-N, if you want to write it down in English, oikon. And actually, okay, a couple of weeks ago, I encountered... um, this word in the wild, okay? It's not like a common, it's not like agape or something, but I I saw it out there in the bushes. So what happened was this guy I know, kind of, he was talking about how his friend planted a church. And that always is interesting to me because that's kind of what I uh, was involved in. So I looked up this church and the church was called Oikon Church. I was like, interesting, I'm teaching on that very soon. So I was looking more at the website and turns out the story is, The pastor who started the church, guess where he's from? He's from Southern California. And guess where he planted the church? In Texas, right? In Houston, though. But in Texas. And I was like, am I looking in a mirror? Is this Zoe's website? Did we change our name to Oikon? Like, what happened? I mean, this guy is from the same place as me. He moved to the same place as me. And he named his church after a Greek word. But then I looked more, and the theology is really different. So I was like, never mind. We are not the same, you and I. But anyway, the church was called Oikon. And they actually did a really good job of explaining why they called it oikon and what oikon means. And they basically nailed it on the head. They called it oikon because the word has a double meaning. So oikon in Greek, it could, one, refer to house, okay, like the physical space in which you live. And the church is the house of God, right? Remember when Jesus, he cleansed the temple? Do you remember what he said? He's kicking everyone out. He says, this is my father's house, The Jewish people called the temple the house of God and vice versa. So that is legit. We talked about that earlier in the series. So that's one of the meanings. But the other meaning of the word oikon is household, which is another word for family. So what does Paul mean here in 1 Timothy 3.15? How do we know it's family? Well, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, remember context is king. So if you look uh, in the same chapter, 1 Timothy 3, look at verse 4, okay, in the immediate context. It's talking about qualifications for overseers and elders. It says, he must manage his own household well, oikon, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The word oikon appears twice in these two verses. And in verse 4, it's clear family is in view. Why? Because when he talks about keeping things orderly, he's not talking about furniture. He's talking about keeping your children in order. He's talking about family dynamic, and that is what is put in parallel with the church. Because an elder has to be someone who can manage the people in his family, right? The immediate people that he lives with. If he can't do that, how is he supposed to manage all these other people in the church? And so this is all to say, it seems pretty clear that what Paul means in 1 Timothy 3.15, it's carrying on this idea. When he says the church is the oikon of God, he's not just talking about the house of God even though that is true. But he's talking about this idea of households, people. The church is people. Remember, ecclesia means the assembly. And this is a uniquely important picture for the church in the New Testament. And the reason is, well, let me put it this way, okay? So I shared in the beginning that we, we had a baby uh, three weeks ago. Um, so we welcomed our first son into our family, making it a family of five. His name is Levi. And I brought, we brought him home from the hospital or whatever, and uh, we have two older kids at home. Now, Peyton's the oldest. She's almost seven. She understands. She's been through this drill before. She knows what siblings are and stuff. But Reezy, my second daughter, who's two, I'm trying to explain to her, okay, this is like your brother now, right? So I told her that his name was Levi. And she understood, okay, there's a baby named Levi that's going to come home. 
Okay, Levi was in mommy's tummy, all these different things. So I bring him home, and I'm like, this is your little bro, right? She says, no, that's Levi. And I said, you're right. Okay, that is Levi. That's what I said. But he's also your little bro. And she says, not little bro. That's not his name. It's Levi. So I'm like, okay, I got to explain this in a way that a two-year-old can understand. So I said, listen, do you know what mutually exclusive means? I'm like, I think you know, right? They're not mutually exclusive. I'm like, they can be both simultaneously. I kept the vocabulary really simple for her. And she was just shaking her head like, what's wrong with this guy? Like, why did God give me a father like this? But see, what's going on? Okay, there's a lot going on here, but what's going on? Think about this. Levi is her brother, even though she didn't understand what I was saying. Levi is her brother, even though she didn't recognize it at the time. And that's because why? Because Levi is a part of our household. She doesn't determine who's part of our household, okay? His existence does. His relation to me and Christine does. See, when it comes to the picture of the household of God, the reality of the whole, okay, follow with me now, the reality of the whole that we together, all of us, are a family means something in particular to how each of us individually should relate to each other. Does that make sense? The picture of the household is about challenging and redefining the perspective that we have when it comes to looking at each person that is in this congregation, in this room. Because look around. Okay, don't, you don't have to literally. But just think about it. Think about the people here and the church. Who are they to you? Who are they to you? How do you view them? How, how do you see them? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you encounter someone from this church when you're walking in the door for service or going to community group or running into, into them at Kroger or something like that? Because here's the thing, okay? I think we can jump over some of the, the most basic things. I think most people here would not challenge me if I preached a message where I just said, look, the church is family. The church is family. The church is family. You'd be like, okay, I don't disagree with what you're saying. It's in the Bible, brothers and sisters in Christ. I know it. Theoretically, all of us, if you've been around in church even for a little bit, you know that this is true, that church is family. But on the ground, do you view people that way? In real life, do you view people that way? Or is it like, oh yeah, there's just some people who sit in a different pew than me and I will never meet them. Because they happen to go to our church, but we don't really have a relationship. Maybe, you know, we signed the same application for membership, but, or is it, oh yeah, it's just that, it's that old guy at church, or I don't know, it's just that kid of that person, or it's that quiet girl, whatever. How do you view the people at church? Because if there's one metaphor in the New Testament that should define how we view people, it's this one. I mean, think about what's typical. A lot of people see church as a few friends and many strangers. They view people as uh, people at church as acquaintances to smile and wave at, max, and nothing more. Maybe you toss in a few more categories depending on who you are, potential clients. I know people who come to church for business, maybe a dating pool, if that's what you're looking for, an audience that's here to appreciate your gifts, servants to meet your needs, maybe a combination of all of the above, and you can even know people's name because we have name tags provided. I mean, my daughter knows Levi's name. But that doesn't mean that we're viewing people as brothers and sisters in Christ. But that's what the word says. Now, the truth is, okay, I know a lot of you guys do view Zoe as family. I mean, I'm not trying to be ungrateful here, okay? Because you guys really demonstrated by your actions that you do view us that way. Uh, especially the past few weeks. We had so many meals brought and diapers again, and people checked in on us and offered to watch the older kids, which we really appreciate. I felt like we had 100 family members in town for the past month. And the truth is, we do. We do. But the truth also is, okay, that maybe the number one complaint I hear in church is some version of, I don't really click with the people here. I don't really get along with these people. And I think we've all felt that a little bit. I think it's natural. You know, we're in different stages of life. We have different backgrounds. We have completely different interests. Sometimes it gets awkward when we talk. But think about, what if my daughter said that about our son? We don't really click with this guy, right? He's different than us. We're girls. He's a boy. We're older. He's a baby. Right? We tried to talk to him, and he just cried. We don't really like this. But I say, okay, you're right. Forget that kid. I choose a different brother. I'll take him back. Of course not. 
Okay, the relationship is not dependent on how it feels. The, depend, uh, the relationship is dependent on what's true. So anyway, all this to say, what are you, okay, what are you saying, Jesse? What are you getting at here? I have to be super close with everyone now. I got to like hug people. Not necessarily, okay? But what I am saying is we need to picture church differently. We need to make a conscious decision to picture the people in the church a certain way, a biblical way. We need to make this decision to lean into the truth of Scripture, that the members of this church are family, whether we click or not, whether we've met or not, whether we've talked to each other or not. The guy in the other row, that's your brother. The, the woman that was greeting you at the front, that's your sister. This is where we have to start, with a different perspective on church. We've got to recapture that. Now, let me tell you something. In the early church, people thought Christians were the weirdest people of all time. Okay, they hated Christians for many reasons, but they thought they were strange. And for a few of those reasons, you can kind of see why if you look at the history. One, they thought that Christians were atheists. I've brought this up before, but if you were religious in the olden days, right, you would go to the temple, you would worship a god, and that god would be a statue. There would be a representation. You could see it. But Christians are like, oh yeah, we're, we're, we believe in God too, and we worship too. But there was no temple, and there were no statues or idols. There was no visible God anywhere. So people called them atheists, even though they were Christians. Kind of weird, right? People also called them cannibals, because they would talk about things like, we're going to eat the body of Jesus, and we're going to drink his blood. So they're talking about communion, right? You guys know, we're doing that today. Um, we don't talk about it exactly like that. But they would say that, and no one had ever knew, known anything like that before. So people were like, these guys, I think they eat like some guy named Jesus. They eat their leader in some way. And then on top of that, okay, beyond the atheist cannibal, people thought that they were incestuous. If you don't know what that means, then you should ask your parents, because I think adults do know what that means. Basically, they thought that brothers and sisters were marrying each other. And the reason why is because husbands and wives would refer to each other as sister and as brother. Now, to refer to yourself as a Christian in wider society, it was to risk identifying yourself as a weirdo, as an atheist, as an incestuous cannibal, all these things. Can you imagine that now? Like, I think some of us would be a little bit less cavalier about getting, like, cross tattoos and stuff. Because people are like, ew, you're a cannibal? Like, we don't want that, right? We don't want to have uh, people thinking we're disgusting and stuff like that. But anyway, go back to the incestuous thing for a moment because I know you want to. We know the truth, okay? We know the truth. Genetic siblings weren't getting married. Okay, they were getting it backward. Rather, married people were becoming Christians. And because they were Christian now, they realized that now we have a new relationship, a spiritual relationship in Christ that we didn't have before. Sure, marriage is the strongest earthly relationship. You become one flesh, but when you become Christians, you enter into the same spiritual family. And it was so significant for these early Christians that they would call each other brother and sister out loud all the time to the point where people outside would hear it. Instead of honey or babe or whatever they called each other 2,000 years ago, they would call each other brother and sister. The notion of church as family was that emphasized. So, I'm not saying we got to recapture that label, but I think we need to go back to that energy a little bit. Because if this is true, then it should define who we are, how we view each other, how we view this entire congregation. We're not just another club or religious group or consumers of the same religious products. We're family. Now, I'm happy to report earlier this week, Reezy was like, this is my little bro. And I was like, praise God, he is, he has been, progress. I kept telling her the truth, and it finally sunk in, and that's what we got to do here. It might not be natural, it might be a little awkward to think about people as brother and as sister, but that's the truth. So until we, it sinks into our heads, into our hearts, we got to keep talking about it. Now, this leads to the second point. Okay, that was kind of like prologue, we had to get that out there. Second point, though, the problem. Because what I just said sounds kind of nice, but I think if you start to pick it apart a little bit, you have a lot of questions. What does it mean to act like a spiritual family? How, how am I supposed to view people? What does it mean to be a brother or a sister in Christ? And this is what we touched on earlier. So the problem, second point. We're supposed to picture the church as a family, but it doesn't solve the issue that all our families are pretty different, right? I mean, even practically. Are we thinking big family or small family? Is a church of 20 
the same kind of family as a church of 5,000? Are we talking about extended family, only nuclear family, close family, broken family? The thing is, for some in this room, right, family is the greatest thing that you've ever experienced. You're excited when I talk about this. You're like, wow, I get more of that. I love this metaphor. That's a few select people here. But for many of us, family is actually a net negative in a lot of ways. When you really think about, okay, do I really want these people here to be like my actual brother? Oh, man. You think about the drama, the bitterness, the conflict, even abuse. The last thing you'd ever want the church to be is like a family. So that's what's going on in here. And then, of course, there's all of us in between. And, you know, I was looking up all these different sermons about church's family this week so I could plagiarize. No, I'm just kidding. I just wanted to see what was out there. I wanted to, wanted to see kind of what's popular about the family. So I looked up, like, famous teachings. And the one kind of common, constant thing that I saw, even among people who were really different, was that they just put it out there that church is a good thing. It was kind of this assumption, I mean, a family, church's family is a good thing. That family is loving, that family is a beautiful thing, and it is that to a certain extent, but you can't assume that in a fallen world. And i got to show you this. Look at Genesis 4. Turn with me to Genesis 4. Genesis chapter 4. First book of the Bible, fourth chapter. Instead of making our own family experience as the referent for this metaphor, Let's instead look through the lens of Scripture. Let's take a brief look at what the Bible shows family to be. I think that that would be a safer, better option, a better way to go. Genesis 4 is where we see the first human family ever in human history, parents and kids. Previous to this, God created Adam and Eve. He placed them in the Garden of Eden. Everything was great, but then they fell into sin. And because of this, they couldn't be in the Garden anymore or directly in God's presence anymore They knew they were naked and ashamed. A lot of stuff happened. So now we pick up the story in Genesis 4.1. Listen to this. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Okay, so mom and dad, they have two sons, Cain the older, Abel the younger, verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, we don't know exactly why God approved of Abel's offering and didn't approve of Cain's. It says Abel brought of his firstborn. It doesn't say that Cain brought his first fruits, so maybe it was about bringing the best. Whatever it was, for our purposes today, focus on this. It's not what Cain did. It's his reaction to what God said. He's not only mad in general. He's mad at his brother. And who can't relate to this? Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And we're like, okay, I do that all the time. I'm mad at my brother. Talk to him. But then, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Hopefully that is not your story. And if it is, hopefully the police know. Now look at this attitude, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now the implication is yes, but think about this. Think about this big picture. This is the first human family that we read about in Scripture. In fact, this is the first human family that has ever existed in the course of human history, ever. There's parents, and there are two kids, and one of the kids kills the other kid. So you have a dead kid and a murderer. That's the family. See, what happens is preachers get up here, and they say, church is like family. Go be like family to each other. And you're like, yeah, this is awesome. I'm going to be like family. Let's look at what the Bible shows family to be. And you start in Genesis, and you start reading, and the very first family, one brother kills the other. You keep reading, and it doesn't, maybe it gets a little better, but you see terrible, terrible things happen within these families. You think about Jacob and Esau. Jacob tricks Esau to steal his birthright. Esau would have killed Jacob if mom didn't intervene. You think about Joseph. Joseph has 11 brothers. You think that that would be so awesome, right? You have this big family. You can hang out, watch football together. No, they put him in a well, and they sell him off into slavery. 
Those are his bros right there. And then that's not just the Old Testament. If you think about the New Testament, what about the most famous parable Jesus ever told? The prodigal son. What goes on in the prodigal son? Well, this guy has two sons. One of them, he basically spits in his father's face, says, I I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now before you die. He goes off and he wastes all of it. The other brother, he stays, but he hates his father and his brother the entire time in his heart. So yeah, the church is your family, guys. Go and be blessed, right? Peace. See you guys, brothers and sisters. I mean, that's kind of what happens. Now go to your, go back to our text in 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. Start with verse 14 again. This is Paul writing to Timothy, and he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The Bible, okay, it's not a sugar-coated book. It's a real book. And it shows the brokenness of families from pretty much the first page. It doesn't pretend that things are better than they are. But notice here that Paul knows that. He says, if I delay, you may know. Okay, I'm writing, writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. He doesn't assume that just throwing the word family out there is enough. He doesn't assume that they will just know how to behave as a family. He doesn't assume that they would even think that family is automatically a good thing. He's teaching them through this letter and through the rest of his letters how family should behave. See, the truth is family can be good and it can be bad. It can be the best thing ever in the world or it could be the worst. It could bring us tremendous joy or incredible pain. And that's because drum roll, please. I'm about to drop a truth bomb on you guys. Families, by definition, are made up of people. Do you guys love it when I say the not profound thing? I do that like every other week. I say not regular not profound things, and then I say the super not profound things sometimes, but I pretend it's going to be profound. Families are made up of people. Why am I bringing that up? Well, the word oikon, like I said, it's an interesting word. And I would say it's an interesting word choice for Paul, too, because there are words in Greek that can be used for relatives. There are words that can be used for your clan or your kin, kind of what you think about in terms of people who are maybe blood-related or something like that. But no, he used the word oikon, which means household. What's the difference? Well, here's the thing about oikon, kind of the nuance to this word. Okay, you can have relatives, you can have people that are related to you that don't live with you. You might not even live with your siblings. You might not even live with your parents. In Paul's day and age, a household, an oikon, wasn't everyone you were related to. It's the people that you live with. There might be servants who are part of your oikon. There might be extended family, maybe an aunt or an uncle or a grandpa or grandma, something like that. So what Paul is getting at isn't so much the blood relationship aspect. Okay, how close we are, how similar we are, that's not what it is. What he's talking about instead is the actual living relationship that we are, for better or for worse, stuck together under one roof. We dwell in the same house. We are part of the same whole. We function together as a family unit. Now, there are many circumstances why this could happen, but it's this oneness, this togetherness that's emphasized. See, my girls, they might not like Levi. They do, praise God, but they might not like him. They might never like him doesn't matter. He's still part of our family. He's part of this household. See, family is people who, for whatever reason or circumstance, have come together to live as one. And this is where it becomes clear. Why are families so messed up? Think about your family. Think about bad family experiences. What's the common denominator in all those things? It's people. Families are so messed up because people are messed up. And people are messed up, why? Because of sin. You know, let me share something with you. When I was going to seminary, um, I moved in with some guys, some brothers from church. Um, And on paper, it was great, right? We go to church together, we serve together. My actual roommate, we went to seminary together, we took every class together. It's not Eric, okay? Eric was also with us, but he lived with Tricia. Uh, He betrayed us. No, just kidding. Um, But my friend, we went to seminary together, we did ministry, we served in the same ministry together, we lived together in the same room. So literally, the only time I wouldn't see him is when I closed my eyes. He was 
always with me, and I was always with him. On paper, it sounded great, though, right? I mean, we're brothers in Christ. We got along great. We served together. We love God. But once we started living together, uh, you know, I had to forgive him a lot. No, we, we just butted heads a lot. Like, uh, certain things got under our skin. I mean, we were questioning each other's calling a little bit. And I wish to say that I was joking, but I'm barely joking. Like, I feel like it got to a point where we just were, like, not getting along. It was affecting our drives to seminary. We didn't even want to, like, drive together anymore, really. And it was really awkward for Eric as our third wheel. Here's why I bring it up. On paper, it was perfect. On paper, it would have been great. We knew each other for a while, all of that. And yet, because we were sinners, when we were together all the time, our sin came out. It was inevitable. I'm not excusing it, but I'm just saying this is the reality Our sin came out and we had issues. So consider two things as we think about the church as a household, and then we'll move on to the final point. But one, okay, we're talking about family. Is it good or bad? I would propose to you, let's not think about it that way. The first thing is adjust your expectations. Okay, calibrate that perception in your mind. There is no such thing as a family without flaws, a family without conflicts, a family without imperfections. Why? Because there's no such thing as a person without those things. Now, extend the metaphor. There's no such thing as a church without flaws and imperfections and conflict. Look, I know people who are quick to leave church. And, you know, I'm not saying it's wrong to leave churches. There are some good reasons. But the truth is, there are always reasons. And sometimes I think we have just the wrong idea of what church is supposed to be. Our expectations are off. You talk to people, even some of my good friends, a leader who didn't always lead well, maybe, or there was conflict with a difficult person or another family, or there weren't enough people serving, and they just felt like this church is just not doing that good, and I'm getting burnt out, you know, doing all these things for everyone, and no one else does it, and maybe there was gossip, maybe there was worldliness, judgmentalism, and that might have been there. Most of the time, I don't think that they're lying or exaggerating. However, while, even though while I say you can never leave, you can leave church, okay, it's not necessarily wrong. However, do you realize that every church is going to have something? That's the thing that we need to accept. That's what's built into the church as family, I think, a little bit. Are you sure your expectations are right? I know people who can never stay at church. Or I know people who have given up on church entirely because they're like, they're sinners there. People hurt me in this way. The, the leader wasn't perfect. That's the way it is. Because we are people and we are sinners. We're called to do life together with other sinners under one spiritual roof and all that that entails. Adjust your expectations. Two, check yourself too. Check yourself. What does Paul say? He's writing so that people will know how they ought to behave in the household of God. Now, you could point that at other people. You should behave this way, but it's to all of us in the church. So before you kind of pick out the speck in someone else's eye, consider the log in your own. How have you or how are you even making the family worse? Kind of a harsh thing to say, but I think we all need to reckon with this. How am I, by the way I behave, by the things that I say or don't say, by the way that I serve or don't serve, by the way that I complain or don't complain, by the fights that I pick or don't, how am I contributing to kind of the net negative of church as family? I mean, you got to think about yourself. Do you burden other people without lifting a finger to help them with their burdens? I'm not calling out anyone in particular. I'm talking to all of us, myself included. Do we consider how maybe we are the hard person at church for some people? Do we think about how maybe we are the person that keeps someone else up late at night or the person who makes other people leave? So all this to say, you guys encouraged? Right? Hope you are. God bless. Thankful for the blessing of church family? Maybe not yet, but there's one final point, and this is where we had to go. The picture is of a family. The problem is family isn't always good. A lot of times it's not. That's the reality. But lastly the privilege. And this entire thing would be incomplete if we didn't talk about this, the privilege, which is about the blessing that family is. And it is, it is a blessing. There's a basketball writer that I enjoy reading, and he writes about basketball, obviously. That's all he writes about. But 
last year he mentioned that he got diagnosed with cancer. It was kind of a personal thing that he wrote. Um, and he lives in Dallas. You know, I like reading his stuff. So I'm like, I wonder if I'll see him around sometime. Yeah, I used to think that. Um, but he got cancer. And then just this week, as I was preparing the sermon, he wrote a new article that wasn't about basketball again. And he said that he had chemo and stuff. And it went away for a little bit. But he said the cancer's back. He, he's a young guy. He's in his 30s. He has like a young son who's like two years old or something. And he's like, I, I might not make it, you know. But it's on a basketball website or like, you know, sports culture and, and, and pop culture, all these different things. But he's talking about this. And he actually brought up some really personal stuff that I, wouldn't, I didn't expect to read at all. So he said that for himself, his dad got Parkinson's when he was young. So he didn't really like know his dad super well. So he was like, you know, it's interesting because my dad, right, he had Parkinson's. And at first, all his friends from like the gym and from work and stuff, they were like trying to help out. They were bringing some stuff over, driving him to the hospital. But he said after a few months, it all kind of died down and went away because the bonds just weren't that close. And he's like, one of the biggest lies that we see today. In fact, let me read the quote. He said, the lie that society tells us is that our friends can be our family. The lie that society tells us is that our friends can be our family. And I love friendship. That's one of the most important things to me in the world. But I think what he's saying is totally true, that we can just move to a different city every few years, meet some new people, and just connect, and they're just going to be there for us when we get sick. He's like, that's not true. I learned it from my own experience. But this is why I share this with you. Because he said, after that, he said, in my case, I go to church. I, this is, he's a basketball writer. He's like, I go to church. He said, seven years ago, I joined the small group that I'm a part of. And he said, in this group, at first it was awkward. We were strangers, really. We didn't get along naturally. Uh, we didn't even agree on some, you know, certain preferences and stuff like that. But he said, after seven years of meeting together, we are family. We are spiritual family. And he's just writing about this, talking on a national platform about church family. And I was thinking, that's what it is. See, okay, let's take a big step back. I'm talking about family, talking about the problems with family. There's something in this text, 1 Timothy 3, that I kind of intentionally skipped over, but it's probably the most important part. I hope to come to you soon, Paul says, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God. See, the church is not just any family or any old household. The church is the household of God. It's not my family. It's not your family, even though it is in a sense, but ultimately it's God's family. And that makes all the difference. Because let me, make, uh, let me break it down for you. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. We'll do this quick. Luke 3. Often overlooked, Luke chapter 3. In Luke 3, we see the genealogy of Jesus, his ancestry. And we're not going to read it all, but I just want to show you how it works. If you look at the beginning of the list, it says in verse 23, uh, yeah, in verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then it's all these names, okay, all these ancestors. And then go down to verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Who is Adam the son of? We know he wasn't born. We know he was created out of the dust of the ground. But who is Adam the son of? According to Holy Scripture, he is the son of God. Created, not begotten. Adopted, not eternal. But he is God's son. See, when you read the Old Testament before Cain and Abel and Jacob and Esau and all that, we see Adam and Eve, children of God, living in perfect harmony with each other and with their father. God walks with them. There's no conflict, no issues, no problems. But then you know the story. God warned them, if you take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. The relationship between us will be broken. You will become a spiritual orphan, in a sense. He didn't say that, but that's in there. We see that throughout Scripture. They take of it, they disobey their father, they sin, and because of them, the entire creation is plunged into darkness. Adam and Eve forfeit the intimacy of familial relationship with God, and what happens to us as their children? No longer sons, but enemies of God. 
no longer close and intimate, but estranged and distant. We are in need of reconciliation. You could say that Adam was the original prodigal son, but so are we. So where does that leave us? Well, think about the problem. The problem is sin. The problem is sin. The reason why family is hard, the reason why church is hard, is because of sin. And think about the picture. It's a household, yes, but more. What Paul is saying here is that it's not your household. It's not a human household. It's God's. Sin separates us from God. So what did God do? Well, God sent his only begotten son into the pigsty of our world to retrieve us prodigals. Jesus Christ gave up all the privileges of perfect fellowship with his father, love, care, affection, and came to live as one of us and more to die on a cross for our sins in our place, being forsaken by the father in that moment so that we could be forgiven and brought back in. And this is what makes the church different. The church family different. Because God has made us sons and daughters. Not because of who we are or what we've done, or even if we deserve it, not even because we're created by him, but because of grace. So the church is the only family in the world where, yes, we're all sinners, but we're also all redeemed sinners. And that's the difference. What unifies us, what defines us from the get-go, what signs our adoption papers into his family, is the grace and mercy of God the Father. We have a Father in heaven who loves us and the same older brother who rescued us and who helps us to be more like him. Going back to that writer, you know, the difference between friendship and church is that truly, if you are a Christian, you have the same Father. We'll continue the thought as we close with this. I read a story once about a girl who was actually orphaned. You know, I think sometimes people have fantasies about what a different life would be like because they don't know what it would be like. Starley wanted to be an orphan. She didn't know what it meant to be an orphan. But I read a story about a girl who was actually an orphan. No romantic notions of being a tough loner on a TV show. This was real life. And it was rough. She was adopted once by a family when she was younger, but it didn't work out for whatever reason, and they actually dissolved the adoption and took her back. So this Christian family adopted her afterwards when she was eight. And what they found out was her previous family had actually vacationed all the time to Disney World, but they would never take her. So they would take all their unadopted kids, you could say, but they would leave her at home. Really sad. So when the new family found out, they were like, we got to take her to Disney World. Okay, if anything, we're going to take her to Disney World. So they planned this trip. But as the days got closer, the girl started acting out a lot, being really argumentative, stealing stuff, lying. And they were like, what's going on? Right? Like, can we even do this trip? And they're like, we got to do it. So finally, a couple days before, the fa- father pulled the girl aside and was like, hey, we got to talk about your behavior. You know, like you're fighting with your siblings, you're lying and, and all these things. Um, but before he could go on, she said, okay, I get it. I know what you're going to do. You're not going to take me on the trip. Because in her mind, right, she had figured out that, she had figured, and like the way she thought was that the reason they didn't take her must have had something to do with her, right, her own worthiness or behavior or whatever. So she's testing this new family, not getting her hopes up too much, kind of in a way self-sabotaging. But this father said, look, okay, he was tempted, he said, in that moment to be like, you better shape up or else I'm not going to take you. But he knew that that would be wrong. He said, is this trip something we're doing as a family? And she said, yes. And he said, are you a part of this family now? She nodded and he said, then of course you're going. So they go to Disney World, right? Dude, you know, I shouldn't tell these stories after I had a kid like three weeks ago. But that's just me now, man. I, I just, uh, I'm just, Eric gets more cranky as he gets older. I get more sentimental. <laughs> they go to Disney World. They went to Disney World. And, of course, if you've ever been to Disney World, which I haven't, I've read about it. It was exhausting. And then it's Florida, so the humidity, the lines, the price, all Disney stuff is super expensive. But they went, the whole family. And after they got back to the hotel that night, he sat down with his daughter and he said, how was your first day at Disney World? And she closed her eyes 
and laid back in her hotel bed and said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I'm good. It's because I'm yours. Sentimental. But that's really it. It's not because we're good, but it's because we're his. See, you might get the wrong idea from a message like this. And this is why I felt like we had to end here. You might get the idea that I'm telling you to force it. Look at these strangers in this room. Pretend that they are brothers and sisters. Or you might get the idea that you have to make believe that the church doesn't have problems. That I'll act like we're just a happy family, even though there's sin and all these issues and we don't get along and there's awkwardness. It's not that. It's that at the end of the day, the church is the household of God because we belong to him by grace. And the God who is a consuming fire. It says church of the living God. If you do a search of that term, it says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is the one who judges the living and the dead. He is holy, holy, holy. He has set his love on those who believe. He has adopted us into his family and called us his own, each and every single one of us. Not because we earned it, but because he chose us. And our relationship with each other flows from the immense privilege that it is that we have a Father in heaven that we don't deserve, who, because of his mercy, has said that nothing can separate us from his love. So the picture that the Bible is painting, it's a realistic picture, but it's a beautiful one. Does the church have problems? It does. But is church a privilege, an incredible blessing? It is. So go and be blessed. And see you next week, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. God, we are blown away, really, that we can come before you, not just as our God, not just as our Lord, but as our Father. And as your word says, we can call you Abba, Father, that there is a closeness And God, we know that we are accepted not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done, because of who he is. So God, I pray that that truth will trickle down into our hearts and into our relationships with each other. And I pray, God, that we would embrace the familial nature, God, of the church, that we would live it out. And I pray that we would be blessed. God, thank you so much. We pray this in your Christ's name. Amen.